Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'll be speaking today with James Gaines, former managing editor of Time magazine and author most recently of The 50s, An Underground History. On Free Forum, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com, and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Podomatic.com, Google Play, Sound, Spotify, you name it, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. That's all one word, Terrence McNally. Often the 50s in America are dismissed as a decade of Cold War, consumerism, and conformity. Overshadowed by the flashier 60s decade to follow, one of awakening, confrontation, and revolution. Of course, all such simple and sweeping stereotypes obscure reality. I recently interviewed Kevin Boyle about his book, The Shattering America in the 60s. He challenges the 60s myth by telling the stories of Americans for whom the sense of security offered by the 50s was highly valued after a depression, a world war, and in the face of a nuclear stalemate. Many were in no mood for changes that threatened that sense of security. They were the actual silent majority, and their reaction to the challenges to the status quo that got the headlines laid fertile soil for what later turned out to be MAGA world and the Trump presidency. Today's guest challenges another piece of the myth of the 60s, and that is the one that the ideals and visions that fuel their movements arose full-blown on their watch. Through a series of character portraits, James Gaines celebrates a number of solitary, brave, stubborn individuals who pioneered the radical gay rights, feminist, civil rights, and environmental movements. Movements hadn't happened yet, but their courage and genius changed perhaps what it was possible to imagine, often how it was possible to think of ourselves and our relationships to each other and to nature. Individuals like Polly Murray of mixed-race heritage and in-between sexuality who laid legal groundwork for Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Harry Hay, who dreamed of a national gay rights movement as early as the mid-1940s, a time when one thing the U.S., Soviet Union, and Nazi Germany agreed on was that gay people were mentally ill and subversives. Silent Springs, Rachel Carson, MIT's Norbert Wiener, who from very different perspectives converged on the realization and the warning that our mastery over the natural world carried potential for disaster. I'd heard of a number of these people, but I learned a lot about each of them and, and, and more such heroes uh, like them. But perhaps even more, I learned in greater detail the obstacles they faced. It was shocking. Even though I lived and grew up through those times, it was shocking to be reminded just how public officials could openly speak about black people or gay people and how much hate violence was tolerated at the time, not just in the South. 
I find myself turning to history and historians more lately in these conversations, and I guess I'm trying to understand better how we got here in hopes that that helps me understand where we are and how to move forward. James Gaines is the former managing editor of Time magazine and the author of several books, including Wits End, Days and Nights of the Algonquin Roundtable, Evening in the Palace of Reason, a study of Johann Sebastian Bach and the Early Enlightenment, and For Liberty and Glory, Washington, Lafayette, and Their Revolutions. Welcome, James Gaines, to Free Forum. Thanks very much. That was an excellent summary of the points of my book. Okay, and we'll fill it out over the next hour. <laughs> um, and let me tell listeners, we're recording this conversation Friday, September 23rd. Um, I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about. So can you tell us a bit about your path to the work you find yourself doing today? And feel free to go way back, turning points, mentors, moments of decision, that sort of thing. Uh, as my wife always reminds me, it's just half a century ago when my, <laughs> when my career actually began. Um, and I was just very... I can't really um, attribute it to any great genius on my part, but I happen to be in the right place at the right time a lot. I, um, right out of college, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, I never really thought of myself as an editor, but um, I knew that. And I was lucky enough to get uh, jobs writing almost straight out of college for a weekly newspaper that quickly folded for the Saturday Review that folded not long after I left it, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then for um, Newsweek and uh, ultimately People Magazine, where I became the editor, and uh, then Life Magazine, ditto, and Time Magazine, ditto. It was really at Time Inc. that I spent most of my uh, working or salaried life. And um, uh, but as they say, I was just, I was lucky. Um, I wish that for everyone with a strong ambition. Um, but also, I worked my butt off. As <laughs> yeah, e even weekly deadlines are deadlines. <laughs> yeah, the weekly deadlines are murderous, uh, as, as um, daily deadlines are too. It's just that the work is, is more concentrated on about three days a week. Yeah. But you know, I was up for it uh, and uh, used to it by the time I got to the editorship of People, which in many ways was my favorite job. I, I just, uh, I enjoy still writing about people and seeing the world through people. Um, and this book is an exemplar of that. Mm -hmm. I just, I find people fascinating. And these people were especially so because they were so challenged and such revolutionaries. I mean, I, I went to school during the 60s, and I used to think of our generation as being, you know, very uh, progressive and strong and uh, full of vinegar. <laughs> there was nobody more rebellious than the people in this book. I was, I was amazed at what I found. When I started writing about the 50s, I thought I was going to be writing about music and um, film and novels. Um, but I was so taken by the challenges that these people met and faced uh, and succeeded at facing that the book turned to them 
Mm-hmm. And I'm really so glad it did because I met people I didn't know before. I certainly met actions I hadn't heard of before and got a completely different view of my own generation. Yeah. We, we are, by the way, both members of the college class of 69. So, oh, so yeah. our, our, <laughs> our time through the 50s is pretty much the same uh, in terms of, you know, grade school, high school. Uh, I like Ike and uh, Sputnik and all of that. And then, and then our experience of the 60s. You were at Michigan, I was at Harvard. In uh, we both class of 69, years of, you know, active ferment on, on both of those campuses for sure. Um, we'll circle round back to the book and those individuals. Let me talk just a little bit more about you and, and, and your career. Um, and one is that, that you have this, first I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, you, you, as you say, most of your salary career is in the world of magazines, uh, a, a world which has changed drastically, obviously, over the last <laughs> yes. uh, decade or so, and then books. And let me just ask uh, uh, first about um, the magazine industry. Just you were managing editor at time, but you were also a lead editor at both Life and People. And and can you talk briefly? just so we have a sense of someone who is in the sort of the hot seat at that time of the role of a weekly news magazine when you were in it and how the role of those those journals has has changed well for one thing um both time and newsweek are largely um based on on the internet um and you could see that coming i was you know time inc at that time um, not long after I left, sold itself to AOL. Right. And while I was there, I started the first news magazine online in a partnership with CompuServe. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is... Uh, that's how long ago this was. Exactly. <laughs> um, it, which, which quickly moved over to AOL when the time came. But um, there's a wonderful YouTube video uh, of a... It's a baby in a high chair. And someone puts a magazine on the high chair and opens it, and the baby starts poking at the magazine. Oh! And and the uh, and the headline is a a magazine is an iPad that doesn't work. <laughs> right. He's he's using it as a touch screen, which it is not. Right. Exactly. Um, but my guess is that that listeners to this show uh, a few decades younger than us. Um, do not re- remember. I mean, I remember where the cover of Newsweek, the cover of Time, um, the lead story were were, you know, a, a big unifier, a, a, a real a kind of water cooler of interest for the whole country. That's true, and and I'm, and we're old enough that we remember the Weekly Life playing the same role. Ye- oh my gosh, yes, that's right. Yeah. In, in my even younger years, yes, it was. Yes. It was. Lo- Life for sure. That was yeah. that. Was, you looked at that as you were in a supermarket. You saw Life magazine's cover, and that was the big story. Yeah, or or on your coffee table at home. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I I tried to bring life back to a weekly frequency when I was there because it was the time of the first Gulf War, and it was a magazine that covered the Gulf War period, um, and it was on grocery store racks, and it was uh, subscribed to, but ultimately failed because. Uh, the concern at Time Inc. was that it would cannibalize people's advertising. And I think that was probably true. Um, 
it was part of the reason I thought that it 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 could be long uh, back on back on newsstands. But you know, the, the magazine business went the way of Ozymandias. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> it was it was it was great for its time, and uh, but it's uh, buried. Yeah. And and probably you know someday perhaps not for the worse. I, I worry about the fact that the the, the media forums are so uh, loaded with opinion, because opinion is cheap. You know, at people, we, at people, we had 150 correspondents around the country, and all and and as many photographers as we needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and t- at time, I had 400 people around the world. Wow. And you know, no one can afford that now. Right. Opinion, you sit at your desk or in your bed in your pajamas and you opine. Right. No investigation needed. Right. And, you know, I I even don't like listening to the programs I agree with. Uh, because, I they're, because they're so lacking in objective. Yeah, in journalism. Opinion. <laughs> yeah, in journalism. It's, you know, when I went to Time, I said to the staff, I don't want to know what you think. I mm. want you to. I want to know what you can find out. Mm. And uh, even then, we we were already cutting costs. It was cutting costs before I even got there. But it was it was correspondence that the correspondent core that took the worst of the sure from a journalistic point of view took the worst of the cuts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let, let me shift over to talking about your books. Um, other than dealing with history, which they do have in common, um, they do not seem to have much in common. And, and I, first off, I congratulate you on that. But could you talk a bit about how you chose the subjects or how they chose you? Uh, Wits End, was, which was the first book I wrote, and I wrote it a long time ago. 77. Uh, <laughs> right. Okay. Yes. And the next book that I did came out in 2005. So, wow. Uh, so, yeah, Wits Ed was done between uh, Newsweek and People. Mm-hmm. I had to leave Newsweek to do it. Uh, and somebody had assigned me to do it from a friend, actually. It's not the same book, that I, the same uh, authorship that ah. I practiced later. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time I wrote the Bach book, which I love and cherish, I had uh, I had been through my magazine career, and I was living in Paris with my family. And um, Bach, I, I'm a pianist, and Bach had always been my specialty. Um, so I, I wanted to know more about him. Um, and I found that pairing people, which I did in this book, yes, the you 50s, did. as well as the Washington Lafayette book, as well as Bach, uh-huh. uh, whose, whose uh, opposite was Frederick the Great, um, I found that doing those pairings led to insights. And also, by the time I started writing the Bach book, I really knew how to write. I, mean, I learned that. I learned that at the weekly news magazines because you had to do it fast. You had to do it from many, many sources. I remember during Watergate at Newsweek, on Thursday nights, we would get bound volumes of testimony from the past week's hearings, and were to the the staff of the writing staff of National Affairs was given big chunks of those books that boil down to a hundred words. Mm. 
that is by what day? By Friday. Oh my the god! End of the day Friday. Okay. Uh, made for very very long nights, and and the closing night Friday was very late too. So you'd been up all night Thursday basically, and then you were all day Friday, and then into Friday night. It was a uh, it was it was wonderful <laughs> in terms of in terms of teaching the um, art of compression. Uh, it was wonderful. And, and once <laughs> I've been criticized for how short the 50s book is, it's about 250 or 260 pages. But that's a result of <laughs> my training. That's right. And uh, all of the books, well, actually, the Washington Lafayette book is quite long. But I, I'm proud of the fact that I can write deeply short. Yeah, anyone and short. Let me let me just say anyone who does write or has written seriously knows that to some extent that one of the greatest challenges is concession. One of the greatest challenges is to uh, edit out and trim down and famously it's apocryphal or it's Mark Twain. You know, the, had I had longer this chapter would be shorter is basically the point, right? <laughs> right and right. and we anyone who writes knows that's the truth. So I, again, congratulate you. I'm sure Halberstam's book on the 50s is at least twice as long. That would be my Oh, guess. absolutely. <laughs> at least. At least. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, you, you've told me already how this book happened, which was basically in response to your children. How old were they when they became fascinated by the 60s? It was the two boys, and they were about 12 and 10. Mm-hmm. And they'd been talking about it at school. And they'd, they had been uh, listening to the music. And they just felt like their time, and I think that still applies, that their time was less interesting than the 60s. And what, and what was that? You know, what was, what was missing in their generation that was present in mine? And I thought... Uh, it occurred to me as an historian that decades do not define uh, culture and, and that there had to have been uh, an influence of the 50s on the 60s. The 60s did not just explode generationally. Right. Um, there had to be roots of that in the 50s and it started me going to look for them. They're comparing decades and finding theirs wanting Right. So that leads you to compare decades and go search for the yeah. roots of the 60s. I get it. And did you have preconceived notions? What did you expect you'd end up? I don't know if you knew when you went searching that you were going to write a book on this, but what did you what did you expect to find and what set you off on the on the on the path the book became? Well, I knew about Elvis, obviously. Everybody knew about Elvis. And that was, he started in the 50s. And he was a, he was a, um, what shall I say? He was a scandal, basically. <laughs> uh, you know, the hip movements. And yeah. Being Red, Ed Sullivan. And I had really thought that I was going to cover music and the, how music from the 50s led up. Ah. Um, and as well as art, you know, abstract expressionism was a fact of the 50s. And I thought, that's interesting. That's not, the, that's not what you think of as the 50s. And so I kept looking and I was thinking about doing a chapter on politics, a chapter on music, a chapter on art. 
and how those things grew out of the 40s and 30s. Mm. Um, and I actually did the research for that book, which is why this book took about 10 years. <laughs> uh, the research but, for the draft you didn't write took up exactly. much of that time. Yes, Exactly. I still have the notes. Sure. Uh, and uh, let me just read something that you wrote in the book. It's the horror of World War II and its apotheosis in Hiroshima inspired a social, cultural, and political uprising that grew steadily stronger between 46 and 63. And then you talk about Ginsburg, Kerouac, Salinger, Coltrane, Charlie Parker, Jackson Pollock. And then you say the impulse for spontaneity in the arts was not joined by a drive for social and political change. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that... That section of the introduction is all I got from all the research I did <laughs> on the art. Yeah, it was not meant by, by any kind of popular movement or popular expression. And that's why Norman Mailer called it a period of... Uh, of, of, of I have his form. quote here. May I, I'm going to read it for yeah, you because yeah. it, it was sitting right next to that last one. In an essay published in 1957, Mailer called the 1950s years of conformity and depression, and this is a quote, a stench of fear has come out of every pore of American life and we suffer from a collective failure of nerve. The only courage with rare exceptions that we have been witness to has been the courage of isolated people. And, and that, that <laughs> yeah, that quote led me to where I wanted to go, mm -hmm. where I decided to go. Yeah, and it, and it was a wonderful journey. I mean, because I met people I had never heard of before. Mm -hmm. Oh, same here like, in reading your book. Uh, Harry Hay I'd never heard of before. Uh, I know people who had, and they're kind of surprised I hadn't. Right. But I hadn't. One of the things that really shocked me in the gay rights chapter was that the United States, when we liberated the concentration camps at the end of oh, World War II. Oh, my God, yes. We sent the gays back to German prisons to finish out the sentences they'd been, they'd been saddled with for having been gay. And they didn't even have to have a, a gay experience. It was, it was enough to be thinking, labeled. thinking that way yeah, uh -huh. or labeled that way. Yeah, and what you're saying is a lot of sentences in those camps led to gas chambers. Their sentences would not lead to that, but, but the U.S. felt Germany had a right to keep them in prison. Yeah, without any credit for time served in the concentration camps. Wow. Yeah, it's, a, it's really unbelievable how we, how we were then. As I said, I lived through those times, so I probably saw some of these exchanges on the nightly news or something, but it was shocking to reread, and as it was, I can hear for you, um, how we held uh, homosexuals and black people at that time. Uh, you know, the nightly news is about 15 minutes at that time. And, yeah, it is shocking. I, I'm going to read one other quote of yours, which I think fits with this thing of these isolated individuals. You didn't find that the 50s were radically different than people had said. Here's your quote. The 50s really were, as the reputation suggests, a time of conformity, racism, homophobia, McCarthyism, and disregard for the natural world. What you think needs reconsideration is the process of change and that those very qualities of the 50s create the obstacles that make these individuals so unique. Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> uh, 
No, that's really exactly the point of the book, that, that these people, they weren't orators. They weren't out trying to get crowds behind them. It was sort of one-on-one. -on -one. It took Harry Hay, from the time he imagined the Mattachine Society, which was the first movement in the United States, sustained movement anyway, to win gay rights, it took him years to find one person to join him in that cause. Uh, and, and the other people he tried to enlist thought he was insane to put himself out there that way. We'll go into the individuals now, a, a few of them. Paying for people, what it seemed the prevalent approach of gays at that point was to be as inoffensive as possible and to even buy the psychological notion that there was something wrong with you. Yeah, absolutely. I, what, what inspired Harry Hay was in part later the civil rights movement because he felt that blacks deserved, um, were, blacks were a people. They were not just Americans. They were a, a people who deserved the rights of citizens and could fight as a, as a unit for those rights. And he had the same idea for gay people. Now, these are kind of antique concepts, uh, but they were a, a refuge for the time. But at the same time, he couldn't recruit anyone to his idea of the Manashid Society, which ended up being very similar to communist cells. They were independent little groups like AA groups, but they were totally secret. Uh, no one would reveal anyone else's name. They all sort of had pseudonyms. Um, but there were very, very few groups uh, until the 1950s. I mean, from the time when he thought of it in the 1940s, really for five years after World War II, um, did it, it took him to just get a handful of people together. And, and uh, as you say, in, in their early conferences, the Manitoba Society and, and others, I think, their speakers would be experts like Albert Ellis, the psychologist, who would basically tell them there was something wrong with them. Right, exactly. It was not, not in Harry Hayes' organization, but later, in a later iteration, when he was, he was actually thrown out of the organization he started after about one year. And thrown because out of he, the Communist Party, right? And thrown out of the Communist Party. He had been a member of the Communist Party and was thrown out because he insisted on, you know, admitting, not admitting, not just admitting, but, but trying to assert the fact that he was gay. And um, then out of his own organization because they couldn't handle that assertion. They were concerned, as I would have been, with HUAC. I mean, HUAC was after gays as much as anyone because gays in the State Department in particular were seen as the equivalent of spies. They might as well have been spies. And dozens and dozens of them were fired because of that. Um, and that went on until the early 60s. Yeah, and, and just for people to get the sense of this, if you were gay, then you were very liable in someone else's view to be compromised because you could be blackmailed because you were gay. So it was my decision that you were verboten 
that actually makes you vulnerable. And for that reason, I, I call you a subversive and kick you and fire you. Right. Exactly. The twisted Alice in Wonderland logic of that is fabulous. Yeah. Let me tell people, by the way, the book is The 50s and Underground History. I'm speaking with James Gaines. This is Free Forum, a world that just might work. James is former managing editor of Time and Life and People and writer of several books. And this one is the most recent one which we are talking about today. So he has trouble even finding anyone and starts an organization that gets kicked out of that organization because his stance is too radical for them. They are willing in their small cells to admit they're gay, but they basically don't want to offend anyone. Correct. And when he was thrown out, it was the first important convention of the Mattachine Society. And he was very excited to be there. There were crowds of people by that time. And he couldn't believe how far they had come. And it was at that convention that he was thrown out. And the person who took over brought it to San Francisco from LA and insisted that its members be absolutely silent about their sexuality, dress like businessmen, and actually promised the FBI that he would help them find other gay men. I mean, he was a, he was a turncoat of you know, really a, a terrible, terrible person to take on the leadership role of that organization. And it took years, like seven, eight, eight years for that, that Mattachine Society to collapse and for it to be renewed by a guy named Frank Kameny in Washington. D. I had heard of Harry Hay. Frank Kameny was new to me. Yeah, and he was, uh, he was as important as Harry Hay at a later stage in the gay rights movement because he, he, he looked at it as a legal matter, as a matter of civil rights. And as, a, and as a matter for the ACLU in Washington, he got them to join him in a legal campaign for the rights of gay men and lesbians, although there were very few lesbians in his group. And he is the one that sort of rides the transition from, exactly. from uh, an organization of closeted gay men to an organization that actually asserts that gay folks have rights and so on and, and sets the seeds for, for what comes comes later. That gay is good. That was his famous motto. That brief sentence uh, was revolutionary. Yes, it was. I recently interviewed David and Margaret Talbot on their book about the 60s by the light of burning dreams and they focus on the stories of individuals as well. Bobby Seale, hmm. Tom Hayden, Heather Booth, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and so on. And one of the things that they point out is that the early civil rights movement was very often the training ground for what later became a student movement or an anti-war movement, a sexual rights movement. It, it seems to me that these people in the 50s, World War II or the Communist Party or the labor unions might have served that same role. Do you see that? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I make the point in the book that we, we still think very harshly about the Communist Party. But in the 30s and 40s, it could be a positive force for positive change and was actually inspiring to people who wanted to change American society to be more like what America had promised to be. 
many of the people in my book either were members or flirted with the Communist Party. Not just uh, Harry Hay, but, but uh, Gerda Lerner, who was the author of the women's uh, studies programs in America, um, Polly Murray. There's a book to be written, I think, about the Communist Party as it actually was. I, I didn't. I didn't find one. Maybe there is one out there, but I. Didn't mm, interesting. One. Yeah, that it that once it becomes overshadowed by Stalin and the Soviet Union, that sort of thing, that's one thing. But what you point out, and and I think I was aware of it, but it was it was interesting to, to see it kind of unfold, is that as you said, for a time, it was an aspirational American movement here yeah. in this country. Right. The, the people who went there from the United States came home with a vision of the Communist Party in, in the Soviet Union that now I'm talking uh, early, right during and after World War II, uh, that was completely different from our, our vision of the Communist Party and its effect on American history today. It was much more idealistic. Maybe they were the victims of uh, propaganda. I had no doubt it was attempted. Mm -hmm. I thought it was important to say that. Even yeah. Though, uh, there are people who will, may write off the book as, as a communist conspiracy, but I thought it was important to say that because yeah. it was idealism. And these people, like Pauli Murray left the party, so did Gerda Lerner. All of them left the party, mm -hmm. but, but they were inspired by it. That's right. Let's turn to Pauli Murray. Pauli Murray is someone who we have been hearing about in the last few years. There was a, a documentary, which I have yet to see, about her. And so her, her name, I don't think I had ever seen it before the last couple of years, and I have. And she was someone who described her own sexuality as in between, her own gender, and she was black. And she had to deal with both of these. What was her role? And as I said it in the intro, she kind of laid some groundwork for both Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's the case. She was a very light-skinned black. And honestly, I had no idea what that meant at the time until she wrote about it in her autobiography. She was, she was made fun of at school um, and from the time she started going to school for her light skin because they called it yellow and you know, it, it implied the wish to pass for white, which she never tried to do. Um, but all of her forebears were light-skinned blacks. But so Polly Murray wasn't just in between in terms of her gender or sexuality. She was in between the ra races. Yep. And as a result, and she was also brilliant. Yeah. As a result, she went to law school. And at law school, she found the argument that helped Thurgood Marshall overturn Plessy versus Ferguson in the case of Brown versus Board of Education. It was an argument that she found in a dissent in the Plessy case. And Thurgood Marshall just thought the world of her. When she gra had graduated, her, one of her first jobs was to write a, uh, a compendium of racial laws in every state of the union. And Marshall gave it to all his people at the NAACP and called it the Bible of civil rights law at the time. Quite a bit later, decades later, she took on the issue of sexuality and gender 
And it was her argument, the reason Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought so highly of her, it was her argument that, that was the Ruth Bader Ginsburg argument, and she was, and Pauli Murray was acknowledged as an author, of the case that made sexual discrimination unconstitutional. She was brilliant, she was in practice uh, a huge influence on progress in, in gay rights and feminism. Right, gay rights, feminism, civil rights, and as you point out, sort of pre-configured intersectionality. Yes, exactly, and that came, you know, a decade and a half after she had passed, but uh, yeah, intersectionality. The, the idea that race and gender reinforced each other, oppressions against both black and gay and lesbian and LGBTQ people. It was a multiplying effect. Right. In terms of blacks and civil rights, briefly, because I want to talk about the black veterans returning from World War II and Korea yeah. that you talk about, but also Fannie Lou Hamer, I was certainly aware of, but other than the the seating of delegates at the Democratic Convention and that fight, I knew nothing else. What you taught me about Fannie Lou Hamer was remarkable. Well, she was, she was remarkable. Um, a black woman who'd worked on the plantation from the time she was, I think, six, ten? I forget, but very young. She was taken out of school, oh, sixth grade. She was taken out of school to work full-time as another slave on the plantation that she was work that her parents were working on. And eventually she became the bookkeeper and her method of, of uh, protest was to relieve some of her fellow slaves of the debts they had to the owner mm -hmm. because she was you know, cooking the books. So she, that was her first form of protest until SNCC came to town, a student nonviolent coordinating committee to bring civil rights to her section of Mississippi, uh, most dangerous place in America for civil rights activism. And she paid dearly being beaten. She had polio as a child, and when the police beat her, they concentrated on the polio-injured legs. And she was never the same after one of those beatings. Her, her plantation owner fired her when he learned that she had taken other black citizens to, I forget where, the, where they signed up for voting, but she took them there to sign them up for voting. And uh, on the way home, they were caught by police and taken to the jail. And then all of them, all of the, the, the activists who had gone there were beaten. Yeah, and that's what, what I referred to in the introduction about the hate violence that was so... Uh, so tolerated. You, you, your descriptions of some of the beatings in, in this chapter and the chapter on the uh, black veterans is graphic and, and again, somewhat shocking, even though at the time I, you know, I watched the black and white videos of Bull Connor and so on as a kid. Yeah. But still, uh, to be reminded just how you could just annihilate other human individuals and be not just tolerated. That, that was normal practice. That was just enforcing the law. You know, there's uh, a new documentary out by Ken Burns about the Holocaust. Yes. And it shows you 
the, the dark side of America, the side that would tolerate that kind of violence and actually encourage it. I remember reading about Felix Frankfurter was taken aside by someone who had just come from Germany and was told about the Holocaust happening and just simply refused to believe it and walked out of the room. We just couldn't imagine an America that would tolerate that, but we did. Yes. Yes. If you look at lynchings, I mean, the history of lynchings is is really is really uh, very upsetting. And I think I think uh, th this book reminded me, but I'm, I'm just guessing that most people think lynchings were fairly rare events. Yeah. <laughs> An event, not a movement, not a prevalent practice, but it was. Yes, it was. It was, um, I remember reading in um, a book by Taylor Branch, the author, the author of the multi-volume biography of Martin Luther King, about the numbers of lynchings. I mean, there was a time when they were daily. Yeah. And it's just hard to see America that way. And one of, the, one of the real pleasures of doing this book was seeing how it's, how it's built, even today, uh, in, the, in the model of the Constitution that we have. You know, at the end of the book, I talk about these, these rebels who didn't really call themselves or think of themselves mm -hmm. that way, having shown us the way to a less imperfect union and you know the Constitution calls for, or is the Declaration, a more perfect union. Right. But it's always a less imperfect union. Yeah. And the 60s, no doubt, uh, helped us that way, as did when I read or listen to the Malay's speech, the much maligned Malay's speech yes. of Jimmy Carter. Uh. It's a great speech. Oh, my God. He was calling us to our better angels, and we didn't want to hear it. No, no. We weren't ready. No, no, it, it, it's it's interesting. Carter is, uh, to me, a fascinating figure. Um, I agree. In sort of showing us our shadow and being cast out for having done so. Yeah. And look at what's happening today. Oh, exactly, exactly. So uh, we, we, we spoke about Fannie Lou Hamer, we spoke about lynchings. Uh, another, I was going to say chapter in quotes of, of this story, uh, as well as your book, is that of the black veterans returning from World War II in Korea, having served with, by the Korean War, were they serving in mixed units? I'm, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, but certainly having risked their lives for the uh, American dream and come back and as soon as, if they're coming home in the South, are, are denied it. Uh, and you point out that those uh, people who stood up and, uh, and, and in some sense threatened to stand up really created an environment in which the civil rights movement could happen and overlapped a bit. Martin Luther King, I think, was 26. He, he died at 39. He was a very young 26 when some of this stuff was going on. Talk just a bit about those folks. Okay. Well... Blacks in World War II were encouraged to sign up, to enlist in the, in the American service. And um, 
and they did in part because the jobs were so mm -hmm. um, limited and in part because they were encouraged to do this because people like W.E.B. Du Bois were telling them uh, to go serve and, and claim your rights as citizens. There's nothing, nobody can take that away from you if you've served in the army and risked your life in defense of this country. And so they did. They, uh, there, were, there were black units, there were mixed units. And interestingly, the black and white soldiers of World War II, when they served together, got along better the worse the situation was for whatever unit it was. Sure. Because they were protecting each other. Um, but that, that limited camaraderie completely disappeared when they came home. And it made people like Medgar Evers just furious, as, as it would make any of us furious. He was on the bus on the way home with his discharge papers in uniform on a bus and he had to sit in the back of the bus and when the bus stopped for lunch all the white folks got out and went in and ate lunch and he was alone on the bus uh just just uh and and it infuriated him and his brother charles and they started thinking about having a, an armed race war in the united states where jomo Kenyatta was doing at the same time in africa mm -hmm. um, Ultimately, they gave up their guns and tried to work through the NAACP and, um, and other, other civil rights organizations. But for his trouble in Mississippi, Medgar Evers was assassinated and he was far from alone. <laughs> Lots of people were assassinated and many more were under threat. It's, it's actually hard to imagine going back to uh, a meeting that happened when, at Fannie Lou Hamer's church when SNCC came to town and was trying to enlist activists in the black community there. And she was among very few, not even a handful, to raise her hand and say, count me in. A lot of people in the black community called the civil rights movement that trouble. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can easily imagine that. Challenging it could threaten your life. So, you know, enormous bravery. And I, as I point out, the last real service they gave as a group to the civil rights movement was at the March on Washington uh, for Jobs and Freedom, where Martin Luther King made his famous uh, speech. And they, they, they organized as units, as they would have in... The, these are the, the, the black veterans. The yeah. black veterans of, of World War II. And they provided and, the security. Yeah, it provided security for what was thought to become an incredibly violent event. Um, and, you know, it wasn't uh, an illogical expectation. Uh, but they kept the peace, and peace prevailed because of them and because of what they had not only learned in terms of tactics, but what they had learned in terms of the point of a nonviolent movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So last thing you take on is the early stirrings of the environmental movement. And, and many people point to Rachel Carson Silent Spring uh, in 1962. And you link her, as you said, you like to do, link uh, disparate characters with Norbert Wiener, the MIT's foremost mathematician, because both of them, those scientists, uh, 
come to the same conclusion that our conception of mastery of nature is a dangerous proposition. Yeah, and they come, this is the most difficult chapter to summarize. We don't have a lot of time. I know, so just (laughs) give people a log line, you know, a TV log line as you would in People Magazine, and make them go and find it for themselves. (laughs) Right. It is is a very interesting pairing because they're so unlike each other. He was uh, an MIT a mathematician, and she was a, an author. By this time, she had a degree in biology, but she was um, an author full-time. And she had been writing about how beautiful nature was and had these wonderful bestsellers and beautifully written Huge books. bestsellers. Huge bestsellers about how graceful and enduring and, and uh, invulnerable to human mistakes nature was. That was the work of God, so it couldn't be interfered with. Uh, Until the end of her life, when she was brought a case in which you could not deny that human error was destroying nature. In this case, it was airplanes flying over a farm uh, and killing what it was, (laughs) what what would otherwise have been alive and, and good for people. Doing so with pesticides, right? Doing so with pe- yeah. really bad a DDT, yeah. which yeah. Uh, whose dangers were well known by this time. Um, and Nora Wiener found it through his discovery of the fact that when I mean, he came up with the word data, yeah, and he was an information, an, an early AI information uh, theoretician. I I don't know how to put it in short form how that brought him to the environmental movement. But he could see the, he could see the cycle of information that was brought through chemistry and natural life um, as a unit, as, as, a single, as a single conversation. Um, and that was, his, that was his model for anti-aircraft weapons in World War II. He developed a, 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 an amazingly accurate anti-aircraft system. What we'd call now an he, algorithm, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, it conceived of the, the gunner, the, the ballistic missile, the airplane, and the pilot, the enemy airplane and the enemy pilot, and the information coming from it and from the ground as a single cycle of information. Yeah. And so you could see how he would find in man-made chemicals and natural life the same cycle. It was a cycle of information in his view. Yeah. And, and his view prevailed. Yes. He, he had a very I think because he, because he could see that, he could see where, it, where our use of that might lead. Yes, exactly. Well, let me ask you, this will be the final question, which is having spent not just what does this book have to say, but having spent your time in this, what, what's, the, what's the, the lesson for this time now, which, which seems to me to be more up for grabs as to where we and the world go in terms of authoritarianism and democracy and, and hate and love and all of those things. It seems like we are really at a point where no one knows. <laughs> It's interesting, the, the latest and last, uh, le, the, the latest issue of Foreign Affairs 
which is the centennial issue of the right. Council on Foreign Relations. The title is The Age of Uncertainty. Yep. And I thought, how true. Uh, we, we, um, we are very divided. As I don't remember, well, I don't remember the 50s and, and all, the, all the division that was occurring there because I wasn't an adult. But um, I have never known a division as deep as the one in the United States now. And um, I just, maybe this is a cycle that just always happens. Maybe it happened. I mean, you know, it was a time of Teddy Roosevelt. There was a division in the country. At yep. the time of Richard Nixon, there was a big you know, division. And as we talked about Jimmy Carter and George W. Bush. And I mean, maybe the truth is that we're in a, a cycle of improvement that has to go through uh, its dark side before it can get to the light. I don't know, but I think maybe that's what democracy gives us, that freedom to make things better as long as we remain faithful to our principles. Yeah. Um, and as you know, I, I, that's why I really despair the media's lack of objectivity mm -hmm. because it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's informing and, and in fact coalescing these warring factions. Um, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, you choose your side and, and, and it will be reinforced. You watch your network. Right. And, We've got to put, bring it, it to a close. So again, the book is The 50s and Underground History. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. They're both the same website and they're both one word, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net or a world that just might work com. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually 10 articles to flesh out that conversation, sign up at my site or email me at temcnally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at mac.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Free Forum podcast on Apple Podcasts and most major podcast sites. And you'll find years of podcasts at those sites or at my site. Archives, uh, Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, George Packard. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Keanu Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all, you, my listeners, share this podcast widely. And finally, thank you, James Gaines. Keep up your good work. Thank you. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Mr. Tom Conway, President Conway, is president of the United Steelworkers, the USW. Did this infringe upon our national security, right? Was national security put at risk? But a lot of times people forget that National security isn't just about documents in garages or Mar-a-Lago. National security requires sound trade policy, right? Manufacturing in certain sectors, key sectors like steel, aluminum, 
They provide vital resources for our military. They provide resources to help our nation, uh, you know, meeting just infrastructure as an example. So could you speak to some of these vital resources that manufacturing supplies with, re- you know, with relationship to national security? National security isn't going to found, be found in a stack of paper. It, it, it stems out of what we make and what we do for ourselves and the ability to protect ourselves in what's become a ever more dangerous world. And the notion that you have to make that stuff. You can't expect to buy it from your enemies or buy it from somewhere else in the world when you need it. And if you don't make the fundamentals and the backbones of your economy, and and if you don't mine it and mill it, manufacture it, put labor and capital against it, and make those materials that are fundamental to your ability to have not just a thriving economy, but a safe economy, then you really are kidding yourself that you can rely on the rest of the world to take care of you. So, so sectors like steel and aluminum and glass and, and so many others are just crucial to what we have as a nation. And, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to protect that and having our own sovereignty over it, over it and our own control over those things. And, and I think America inherently understands that. And, and we've gone through an era where, you know, we, well, you can globalize everything and buy it wherever you want to. And it's just not, it just doesn't make sense. I think the pandemic taught us that in large way about our medical equipment and our needs there. And slowly the country's beginning to understand that you can't leave yourself defenseless and in that sort of position going forward. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. Did I mention that Kevin McCarthy, the aforementioned piece of is he is just a coward. Not just that he took amazing congresspeople off of committees that were well qualified. He put Marjorie Taylor Greene on Homeland Security. She's an insurrectionist and she was a 9-11 denier in charge of Homeland Security. Someone that previously has said 9-11 was a hoax. Oh my God. Oh my God. God. And someone who said that there are Satan worshiping people yes. in government. Yes. Yes. Oh, I can add that. Yes. She's also on the oversight committee with Paul Gosar and Lauren Boebert. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. That's new today. Yeah, that's funny. Okay. Because uh, Steve Bannon made a great point on Twitter. An FBI official is on record as saying Eric Swalwell is, quote, under no suspicion of wrongdoing. There is something amazing about watching McCarthy engage in actual McCarthyism. Right? What did he say yesterday? If you saw what I saw from the FBI, you wouldn't have Swalwell on any committee. That is exactly the opposite of what the FBI yep. has said. Mm-hmm. On three separate occasions, in fact, they uh, thanked him for cooperating yeah. immediately when they notified him of this Chinese spy or whatever. He did everything right. As a dog lover, what would be the worst thing you could hear about George Santos? Oh. <laughs> Let's say you appreciate our veteran service and you are a dog lover. I mean, what if you were going to make up something about not that you would make things up about George Santos like he would, 
Well, all I know is I that know. George Santos used a Jewish last name so that it would get right. more money, too. Yes. More money from Jews. Yes, there's that. But that's not the main story for me this morning. The main story. The dog. Yeah, this is pretty... This that is... he stole a, die, a veteran's dying dog's GoFundMe money. Yeah. And the dog died, and so did the vet. Oh, my God. His fake dog charity. So he stole the money. He stole the money from a dying dog and, and a the veteran. veteran. Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices.